I thought I'd take this opportunity today to talk a little bit about one of my recent research interests. This involves uh, blockchain or distributed ledger technology. And like at least some people in the area, I've begun to pay more attention to some of the ways that blockchain or cryptocurrencies may be impacting both our markets and some of our laws. Indeed, it's difficult not to pay attention to some of these topics because every day brings new headlines about how you can trade the hottest new cryptocurrency or you know, how government regulators are puzzling over what to do with some new market that's impacted by the potential change that this technology might bring. The other day, for example, I was um, watching my nine-year-old son uh, play an online video game when I looked over and I saw a bunch of ads for how he could trade Bitcoin or how he could find the next big initial coin offering. Now, I don't know if this says more about the um, saliency of cryptocurrencies or the type of video games that I let my nine-year-old son play, but you, you get the point. And something in his mind seemed to stick because a day or two later he came up to me and he said, hey dad, what's a Bitcoin worth now anyway? <laughs> and I sort of chuckled at that because I still remember the first time I heard about a Bitcoin. It was here at this law school. And you know, one of the best things about working around hundreds, you know, working with hundreds of, of young students is you learn about things relatively early. A student of mine came up and said, Professor Geis, have you heard about this new cryptocurrency? It's called Bitcoin. And I said, no, what's that? And he said, well, it's this really neat cyber currency that's um, been created by computer programmers in a way that's completely decoupled from any state activity and that's not backed by anything other than trust that the currency will be worth something. You should buy some, Professor Geis. <laughs> and I sort of scratched my head and I said, no, I don't think so. I'm going to go ahead and pass on that investment. And I've continued to watch as the price of Bitcoin spiked from virtually nothing up to about you know, $20,000 or maybe $10,000 per Bitcoin today, such that if I had set aside $10,000 back then when my first student first approached me, I would now be $45 million richer. Um, it's hard to ignore these types of topics. Um, that being said, despite all of the recent you know, interest and enthusiasm in cryptocurrencies, I would bet that many people don't have a very detailed understanding of what blockchain technology actually does or what distributed ledger technology actually does and how it might impact some of our laws and some of our financial markets. So I think there are a number of different areas where it could have an impact ranging from contract law to tax law. Um, a group of us on the faculty were actually having lunch earlier this week talking about some international law implications of, of, of cryptocurrencies and distributed ledgers. My interest is mostly in corporate law, and so that's the angle I want to take today. I want to talk a little bit about um, some corporate law implications of this new technology. And I thought it might be fun to do it by telling two quick stories. So I want to tell one story about the history of stock clearing and settlement markets. And I want to tell another story about blockchain technology and what it actually can do. And after that, I'll try to take just a minute or two to connect these two stories in a way to suggest some possible implications or some interesting areas to watch for corporate law. So let me start with story number one. What happens after you buy a share of stock? How do you get the legal rights that you're entitled to as the owner of stock? How do you get the rights to receive dividends? How do you get the rights to vote you know, you know, along the lines of the corporate governance? 
For most people, these are especially uninteresting questions. <laughs> we may be excited about the front-end strategies. How do we trade stock that's going to make us money? Tell me the latest flash trading algorithm. But once I've bought the stock, I don't care anything about how to actually get the rights that are affiliated with that stock such that I can, can, can vote um, on, with my shares. But I think there's actually a pretty interesting story here. If we go back to the first half of the 1900s, buying and selling a share of stock looked a lot like buying and selling a used car. When a corporation issued stock, it would issue share certificates up to the, the shareholder that would serve as a title certificate for the stock, kind of like the pink slip that you might own for your car. You would find some place to stash that certificate, and then when you were ready to sell, you would dig these out of your file cabinets and you would send them off to the buyer. You'd stop by a notary first to get these notarized, and then you'd send them over to the buyer. The buyer would take this paperwork or their broker would take this paperwork and they would end up sending it in to the corporation. The corporation would usually have a transfer agent. They would be responsible for um, evaluating who were the current owners of the, of the corporation's stock at any moment in time. And then they would cancel their certificate typically and send out a new certificate to the buyer. We might call this stock settlement version 1.0. And it generally worked okay during the first half of the 1900s. But eventually, as trading volume spiked, especially in the 1960s, we got into a situation where the system began to become snowed under by all of the paperwork that had to be processed in order to settle and clear the stock. Wall Street hired thousands and thousands of new um, clerks to try to process all this paperwork and manage everything. But even then, they began to fall, uh, fall days, even weeks behind. And eventually, they ran into a number of delivery fails, where they just couldn't figure out who owned the stock that they had you know, lying all around their, their various warehouses. So for example, one Lehman Brothers analysis at the time um, concluded the following. Well. We have 475 million in securities whose owners we can't locate. And we owe clients $220 million in securities that we can't find. This was a problem. Later congressional testimony even estimated that during this period, the mafia took advantage of this um, chaos to steal more than $400 million in stock. And eventually, at the height of the crisis, Wall Street shut down every single Wednesday. The financial markets were closed just so the brokers could try to catch up on all the old paperwork and sort out these piles and piles and piles of certificates. This clearly wouldn't work. And Congress and the SEC and Wall Street pressed for a fix. And eventually they settled on one. We can call this clearing version 2.0. And it's centered around a concept of share immobilization. Let me try to quickly illustrate how this new version works. It's mostly what we use today. So we have a firm, let's call them Snapchat, that decides it's going to issue some stock. Instead of sending out certificates to the individual investors, Snapchat will issue its stock to a centralized entity. In the US, this is known as the DTCC, or one of its subsidiaries, CD, is going to be the formal record holder of the stock. Then the actual investors will be treated as the beneficial holders of the stock. But CD is going to hold on you know, to all the rights in what's called unidentified fungible bulk. They're not going to distinguish among the different types of certificates. 
The actual owners will be known, again, as the beneficial holders. And so, for example, some of you might be familiar with Ravana Investments. This is a student organization here that has um, raised a small amount of money that they actually invest on behalf of the law school. It's a, it's a, it's a great uh, student organization. I don't know how they've done in recent years. I like to think they've done okay. We have pretty sharp students. If Ravana decides to buy shares in Snapchat, it will be designated as the beneficial holder and should get all of the legal rights of ownership, but CD will persist as the record holder. When they're ready to sell, they will contact their broker, maybe it's Fidelity, and say, Fidelity, we'd like to sell our stock. They'll find someone to buy the stock, and then eventually the shares will be transferred to the buyer, not physically like before, but through accounting adjustments or through bookkeeping adjustments. So if it happens that the buyer also is represented by Fidelity, then Fidelity will just make a bookkeeping adjustment to reflect the, facts, the fact that the beneficial ownership has been transferred from Ravana over to the buyer. So Fidelity's records will just reflect the fact that money goes from buyer to Ravana, beneficial ownership goes from Ravana back over to the buyer. If, on the other hand, there's a different broker who's involved, the trade needs to be cleared one level deeper. So if instead of Fidelity representing the buyer, there's a company, uh, say BNY Mellon, who represents the buyer, then the trade is going to be cleared down at the DTCC level. And what will happen is there will just be a record-keeping adjustment reflecting the fact that BNY Mellon is now going to be earmarked or responsible for managing more of Snapchat stock. Um, the main point, though, is that in both cases, Specific shares are not identified as the ones that have been traded, and CD is going to persist as the formal record holder of the stock. This is what we use today, settlement version 2.0, and it generally works okay, but from corporate law's perspective, there are a few problems. One problem is just increased complexity and transaction costs. So if you think about it now, every time a company wants to hold a vote, say for annual director elections or for anything else, we've got to work up and down through these various layers of intermediaries trying to figure out who actually has the right to vote on the stock and how to process those votes in a way that takes um, an excessive amount of time and complexity. Sometimes there are even mistakes. There are um, a number of instances where, for instance, more stock has been voted than exists in the entire world, right? So people are casting their votes. That's obviously very problematic as a, as a matter of corporate law. Another set of problems stems from the fact that some rights in corporate law actually require share identification. We need to know whether the shares you own qualify for certain types of rights in a way that really can often be indeterminate now. So if, for example, you want to file a lawsuit alleging that a registration statement um, has been fraudulent, you may need to demonstrate that the shares that you own were ones that were issued in connection with the fraudulent registration statement. And as I've suggested, that may be impossible in a world of fungible bulk. It's an indeterminate question, but corporate law still uses that inquiry in order to figure out whether you qualify for those rights. So said differently, we've arrived at a clearing and settlement system that mostly works. It solves the paperwork crisis problem, but corporate law has paid a bit of a resulting price from the complexity. Okay. Let me turn to story 2.0. What is blockchain or distributed ledger technology um, and how, how does it work? 
So in a nutshell, I think we can view a distributed ledger as just being another form of tracking ownership information about an asset over time or about a cluster of assets over time. So historically, of course, we've tracked ownership information of corporations through general ledgers, right? We have classes in accounting and that's how we track what a corporation owns. These are really different from a distributed ledger though because a corporation's ledger is private, most people can't view it, and it's also limited in perspective. It only shows what the corporation itself owns. It doesn't show the, show the entire ownership history or universe of a given collection of assets. With a distributed ledger, we actually have a network that's established where it's akin to the property registration systems that you probably studied as a 1L student here. All of the ownership history of a given collection of assets is, is um, updated and recorded in a relatively real-time way, uh, in a way that gives you information on who owns what collectively and what's been the history of the asset ownership over time. You can think about this like a real property recording system where there are thousands of individual participants, each of which whom might have the right to modify the records, and then once the modification takes place, these rights are broadcast and mirrored throughout all the industry participants such that you don't need to go down to a dusty government office and look at who the you know, history of owners are. You can just look at your computer system and try to figure it out. Now, the integrity of this system is maintained through this notion of blockchain technology. And let me try to illustrate a little bit more granularly um, how uh, blockchain technology can work. Um, I'll do so by going back to Bitcoin and talking through a Bitcoin example. So suppose I um, was smart enough to listen to my students' advice, and I had bought a bunch of Bitcoin years ago, and now I was ready to give 100 Bitcoins over to UVA Law. How would I do this? Well, both myself and UVA Law would need to set up what's called a digital wallet, which would have you know, ownership information related to us. And I would then you know, exchange my online information with their online information uh, in a way that would create a transaction. These Bitcoins that I own need to be transferred from my address over to the law school's address. That information would then be released out to the public. And you would have a number of participants known as Bitcoin miners who would sort of pick up this transaction. I think some of you have probably heard about these Bitcoin miners. These are people that have these vast computer warehouses, right, full of tons of processing computers that are crunching through information, you know, using more energy than some small states. Um, what are they doing, right? How do you really mine to try to create these Bitcoins? Well, the miners are going to get information on the various transactions that are currently queued up to be processed. So my gift to the UVA law might be one of the transactions, but there could be thousands of other transactions that are ready to be executed. They will then take all of those transactions and they're going to compete with each other to try to solve a crypto puzzle. There's an algorithmic puzzle that they need to try to solve that's going to link the current block, say it's block 92, with all of the other previous blocks in the chain. The nature of this puzzle can differ and it can be complicated. For Bitcoin, there's a number of inputs that the miners need to try to take and then process in order to, to solve the puzzle in a, in, a, in a correct way to get the right solution. So those inputs are gonna include the last solution, the last output from the most recent block. It's gonna include a timestamp 
It's going to include information on all of the current transactions that are queued up to be processed, right? All 2,000 transactions, including mine. It's going to include information about the new Bitcoin that's being created when they discover the solution. And it's also going to include something called a, a nonce. This is known as the variable. This is what the miners are solving for. They're trying to figure out what's the correct nonce for this Bitcoin. And the goal is for each of the miners to take this information and run it through something called a hash function. A hash function is just a mathematical algorithm. It'll take a variable length of text, it'll process it according to you know, whatever the algorithm says to do, and it'll spit out a fixed length output solution. With Bitcoin, you know, it might be a 256-bit solution. And the goal of the miners is to try to iterate again and again and again and again until they can find the right nonce, the right variable, that when combined with all these other inputs, leads to an output string that begins with, say, 12 zeros. This is exceptionally difficult to do because if you change the nonce just by a little bit, the hash function will completely scramble the resulting output. And so it's not as if you can just iterate one number at a time. Some people have compared this to trying to find a single grain of sand in all of the beaches and oceans around, around the entire world. So it takes a long, you know, a lot of computer processing power. That's why you see these, you know, um, rooms filled with computers. And all the different um, miners are competing with each other to try to be the first person to figure it out. Now, why would they bother to do this? Well, one reason they might bother to do this is that they would get paid. If they figure it out, they're going to have the rights to get a certain amount of Bitcoins themselves. Right now, they get about 12 and a half Bitcoins for every you know, block that's created. So, you know, that's maybe $120,000. And typically, it'll take about five or 10 minutes to create one of these blocks. They may not be the winner every time, but if you win it enough, then it might be worth your while. Another reason they might try to do this is because the individual transaction participants might pay them a commission. So I might have to pay a commission in order to um, allow them to execute my transaction. Eventually, they're going to figure it out. They'll find which nonce works. They'll broadcast that to everybody that's participating. And the beauty of this is that you can very quickly see whether the solution is right. You can Use the same nonce, plug it through. If it works, oh yeah, there are 12 zeros. You can link the block to the chain. It now becomes validated, and then all the transactions are effectively deemed legitimate, and my Bitcoins will have moved over to UVA Law's wallet. At the end of the day, what we have here with this blockchain technology is a long string of a database, essentially, that refers back to all of the earlier blocks in the chain in a way that is thought to provide security and immutability, but it also provides um, perfect provenance over who was the historical ownership of whatever the assets were that were reflected in the Bitcoin transaction. Okay, I sense I've lost some of you, but... <laughs> Hopefully, you can at least understand that what we're generally doing here is we're creating a historical string akin to property ownership where we can see you know, who's been the owner of this property you know, for over a long period of time. That, that's, in a nutshell, what we need to get out of this. Now, let me just take a few more minutes of your time and talk about what this might mean for corporate law. I think there are a number of different implications. One of the ones that I'm most interested in is the possibility that we might move to settlement version 3.0. I would call this traceable shares. So if you think back to the first half of my talk, instead of having stock mushed together in fungible bulk by some centralized entity, we might think about clearing stock on the blockchain. 
So if a corporation like Snapchat were to issue stock, it would be issued in a way that was referenced by the blockchain, and we could now look back and have perfect historical provenance over who had owned any specific share of stock over any period in time. And this you know, may not sound that interesting, but as a matter of corporate law, I think there could be some really significant implications. Um, for example, some of the voting problems that I talked about earlier could conceivably be alleviated because we would not have as much complexity now in trying to figure out who had the right to vote at any given moment in time. We would just look at the moment of the vote, who owned the shares, let's take a peek at the blockchain, and then we would give them the voting rights and process their votes. Similarly, if we were trying to figure out whether or not any individual shareholder had a legal right that required specific share identification, we could just look at what shares they actually owned. You want to file a registration, you know, Section 11 lawsuit saying the registration statement was fraudulent. Let's just look if you actually own those shares instead of running into an indeterminacy problem because we can't identify which shares of stock you actually own. So I think those are some potential benefits of moving to a system like that. I think there are a lot of questions and a lot of complexities that could also be, um, be raised by a switch like this. Um, there are clearly questions related to governance. I think many people that work um, in the financial market industry would be very scared about replicating a system like Bitcoin where anybody can go in and modify stock ownership rights um, as long as they solve whatever the crypto puzzle is. So I think it's maybe more likely that we have a system where there continue to be intermediaries, brokers that are the only ones that have permission to write changes to the distributed ledger. Um, but that in and of itself raises questions about how the governance of that own consortium is going to work. And so I think there are a number of questions related to that governance and security that likely would still need to be worked out before we'd see a system like this become reality. Um, another interesting development I think that might arise is that it's not inconceivable that we would see fragmented trading markets for stock. If I want to you know, exercise a certain legal claim and only a subset of shares are going to qualify for that claim, I may call up my broker and say, I'd like to buy shares of Snapchat, but only shares that allow me to sue them for this you know, Section 11 violation. And so I think we might see trading markets become bifurcated or trifurcated in a way that's very different than the way that we normally trade stock today. And finally, from an academic or theoretical perspective, I think the availability of traceable shares would allow us to begin to ask really interesting questions about um, the locus of corporate liability. So if you think about it now, um, corporations are generally punished at the, corporate at the corporate entity level for misdeeds. That has sometimes been criticized for effectively punish punishing innocent shareholders who may have bought their stock in the company long after the misdeed occurred. Um, they're effectively bearing part of the price for a misdeed that may have occurred, you know, five, ten years ago when they were no longer shareholders. Um, I'm not saying we should do this, but if we have traceable shares, it now becomes at least theoretically possible to go back in time and figure out who actually owned the shares of stock at the moment that the misdeed occurred, and maybe if they benefited in some manner personally from the misdeed. So an example that comes to mind is a firm makes a fraudulent representation, the price goes up, the shareholder sells their stock and gains money on the fraud, 
we could conceivably link back to their ownership position at the time and recover from them under some sort of a restitution theory. So again, I'm not suggesting that's what we should do. I'm just suggesting that some of these theories of responsibility for corporate uh, misdeeds might be able to be rethought in the context of traceable shares. So I'm sure there's um, a lot more uh, to talk about. All of this, you know, I have to say, is highly contingent. Um, it's, it's difficult to talk about some of these issues because it's not clear that we're ultimately going to arrive at a situation like this. But I do think there's enough energy, there's enough entrepreneurial activity going on in this space right now. We have companies already that are moving their stock over to a Bitcoin um, type of, a, of, of, of ledger, that this really is a, an important and an interesting area for business lawyers to watch um, over, the, over the next few years. So thank you again so much for being with us today. We really appreciate um, your, your support and your engagement. Um, I'm happy to take one or two questions if anyone uh, wants to talk a little bit more about some of these ideas. Um, if not, again, thank you for being here and I hope you have a wonderful afternoon.